on the web at maincf.org. The time is 9.59 and you are tuned to WERU-FM 89.9 Blue Hill, 99.9 Bangor and streaming online at WERU.org. Coastal Conversations with your host Natalie Springle is up next. Good morning and welcome to Coastal Conversations, a new show here on WERU. We explore issues facing Maine's coastal communities through dialogue with people who live, work, and play on our coast. From fisheries to tourism, from energy to environment, from economy to ecology, we go beyond the social media sound bites, probing deeply into complex issues and solutions. Coastal Conversations is produced with help from the University of Maine Sea Grant Program, whose mission is to support Maine's coastal communities through research, outreach, and education. In partnership with the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration and the University of Maine, Maine Sea Grant brings marine science to Maine people. We're about to engage in the heart and soul of community radio, in which those of us in the studio and you who are listening create a dialogue that we hope will be of benefit to our coast and our communities. This is Natalie Springle from Maine Sea Grant, and I hope you'll stay with us for the next hour of Coastal Conversations. This morning, our topic is phenology, and we'll explain that, and citizen science on the coast. So phenology is the seasonal change of organisms. Hundreds of volunteers are trained to observe and record the phenology of common plants and animals in our communities, which helps scientists document the local effects of global climate change. Our guests today are people who are knowledgeable about phenology and who coordinate several important citizen science projects in Maine that help fill a gap in regional climate research. So in the studio, we have Abe Miller-Rushing, who's the science coordinator at Acadia National Park. Hi, Abe. Thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. Great. Um, We're also joined by Hannah Weber, who's the research and education projects manager. Did I get that right? You did. At the Skudik Institute. Welcome, Hannah. Good morning. Thanks for having me. And we have Esperanza Stancioff, who is an associate extension professor at the University of Maine Cooperative Extension and Sea Grant. Hi, Esperanza. Hi, Natalie. And a little bit later, we will also be joined on the phone by Susan Gallo, who's a wildlife biologist with Maine Audubon. So welcome to the three of you who are in the studio. It's great to have you guys here. Um, So our conversation today is about um, phenology, so tracking the changes, the seasonal changes in plants and animals, um, and how people are involved in phenology um, throughout Maine, uh, particularly on the coast, but elsewhere as well, and how people can tap in and how that's connected to larger questions related to changes in our environment in part driven by um, potential climate change issues. So, um, Abe, tell us, go into a little bit more detail about what phenology is and let me know if I got it right. Yeah, no, you <laughs> did a great job. It's a, it's an obscure word for something that we all notice all the time. Uh, right now, you know, so it's it's when things happen in nature. So right now, um, we're tracking the fall foliage, and in the spring, we all eagerly await when the leaves come out on the trees or when the birds are coming um, to tell us when it's spring. Uh, and that, that's the essence of what phenology is. Um, as a field of study, it's actually as old as agriculture. So people were tracking the phenology of, of when plants uh, were doing their things as, so that they could decide when to plant uh, crops, when to harvest, um, when to treat crops, and things like that. And 
it affects almost all aspects of our lives, in fact, um, and almost all aspects of ecosystems as well. So as I mentioned, agriculture, it's really important. Um, it's also important for tourism. People come here to, to see the bird migrations, to see whales, um, to see um, the fall foliage as well. We're getting a lot of cruise ships coming through right now doing that. Um, also our health, allergy seasons, vector-borne diseases carried by ticks or mosquitoes. Um, maple syrup and lobster. And so it affects a lot of things, and it also affects almost all ecological processes and relationships. And it's also super sensitive to climate change, uh, which is one of the reasons why we care about it, because it's changing dramatically, um, and it affects almost all aspects of our lives. And so we need to learn more about it. And um, we'll get into, in a couple minutes, some of the phenology projects here in Maine. But um, it's fascinating to me to think that something that has been so basic for so many centuries as identifying when the robins return in the spring um, is also a much larger sort of research question and um, connects to a larger research network. So tell us a little bit about the big picture research that's going on and some of the networks at the national level. Yeah, so uh, many federal agencies and state agencies recognize, so this is things like NOAA with the Weather Service and the EPA and the National Park Service and and other agencies recognize that um, these changes are happening and that they're having big impacts and that we need to learn more about them because we don't Uh, Actually, phenology was a big area of studies in the mid-1800s and early 1900s, but it's largely been ignored through this past century, um, and we need to get back to studying it and learning what's happening as a result of climate change. And so those agencies got together and started up the National Phenology Network, um, which I think we'll be talking about more ways that people are are plugging into that uh, during the rest of the call. But but that network is a collaboration of, of professional researchers um, and citizen science volunteers to uh, to help us learn more about the changes in flowering times or bird migration times or frog calling times um, and how those are affecting uh, ecosystems as well as as our personal lives and health. I was when I was looking and do, sort of doing a little bit of research to prepare for the show. It was really interesting to see a reference to Henry David Thoreau, who's yep. an early phenologist. Um, so we're following in some big footsteps. <laughs> that's right. So while he was out uh, making his rounds at Walden Pond, he also ha- was tracking what plants were in flower, what birds were around. He was creating what he called a nature's calendar um, to. Uh, so that he, if he knew what day it was, he would know exactly what was out in mm-hmm. flower, what birds would be around. Or if he, conversely, if he knew what was in flower, or what, or if he, yeah, if he went outside and saw what was in flower and what birds were around, he could know what day it was. Wow, that's really neat. Um, so I know that people here in Maine have been really zeroing in on the seasonal changes in the last few years. And Esperanza, you're with the University of Maine Cooperative Extension and Sea Grant. And among the many things that you do, you are one of the coordinators of a program called Signs of the Seasons, right? And tell us a little bit about what's happening in Maine related to phenology. Sure. Um, well, we have um, a, this program that we started we started this program in uh, 2010 uh, by bringing in some great expertise, including Abe, um, to develop a program called Signs of the Seasons. And it has 
actually in the last few years has um, expanded to a New England um, wide region. But most of our volunteers are definitely in uh, in Maine. And <coughs> Beth Bisson from Maine Sea Grant and I uh, developed and co-coordinate uh, this program. Uh, we are in our finishing up our fifth season um, with uh, five years of data and uh, with 19 indicator species of plants and animals commonly found in folks' uh, backyards, schoolyards, and communities. Um, and we started the program to really engage Maine citizens. The thing about Maine is uh, we have a, a great environmental ethic here. Yeah. And uh, citizen science, uh, which we didn't used to call it that, you know, decades ago when we were engaged in other environmental monitoring efforts like water quality and, and phytoplankton. But, uh, but it's really a, a wonderful way to engage citizens in meaningful work uh, to contribute data to researchers and uh, resource managers and also to create awareness and climate literacy uh, based on our changing climate. So it's been, um, I think, extremely successful. And, uh, of course, we're always looking for more folks to be involved. Um, so yeah, and we, we'll definitely spend some time talking about how people can get involved. Um, it's just fascinating to me that someone like me or my neighbor or whoever can get involved in just by observing what's going on in my backyard, I can contribute to larger scientific knowledge. I think we have this sort of preconceived notion that a scientist is someone who does things that I am not, that we are not individually able to do because we don't have the training, we don't have the knowledge, we don't have the PhD, etc. Um, so this is a, a really different way of looking at science. Um, and I think that there's been some very local efforts, right? And so, Hannah, you're at the Scudic Institute there on the Scudic Peninsula. And um, you guys have been doing some great work with your interns and with visitors who come down to Scudic to engage um, regular, everyday folks in some of these phenology projects. Tell us a little bit about what you guys do. Sure. So it's a good way to get people started to get their hands dirty before they might think to themselves, hey, I can do this in my backyard or in my community or I can take this away with me. Um, it's a good way for us to sort of bring them into the research that we're interested in and it's also research that they can take back with them. So we have a couple of programs that we engage people in. The first one being one of the signs of the season's target um, organisms, Ascophyllum or rockweed, that we have, you know, right down in our inner title. Um, and we have volunteers come down and help us monitor the different, so they're called phenophases, when things are doing different things. So, like, when the buds on a flower come out would be a phenophase. Obviously, for rockweed, it looks a little different, but it's the same sort of thing. So we have volunteers come down and help us monitor the different phenophases through the year of the ascophyllum. And then we've got another project that we bring people in on, um, which we lovingly call birds eating stuff, um, <laughs> which is uh, we have some mountain ash trees around our campus and we do monitor what's happening with the mountain ash trees themselves. So when are they flowering and when are they fruiting and when are the fruits getting ripe? And also what um, birds are coming to use those fruits and when are they coming to the trees and how often are they coming, etc. So we can have volunteers helping us with the trees and with the birds and also sometimes with the insects that also are on the trees. So those are our, our two major projects. Um, that we have going on in terms of phenology. And how do, um, 
How do you engage visitors to the park in these projects? So with the Project Birds Eating stuff, um, we've set it up so that visitors can come and basically come to the visitor center right at Scudic Institute. They can pick up a field data sheet and go out and monitor the trees and the birds for us. And we also do it through the public programs that have um, been organized already. So right now on campus, um, on the Scudic campus, there are hundreds of middle school students who are engaged in the Scudic education adventure. And so through that program, we'll have all of those school students coming and observing what's happening on our trees. So either just the general public who comes and wants to get involved with something going on on campus, or it's programs that are already in place that we have people coming to observe for us. That's great. Um, and so I have a couple questions about the Ascophyllum, the rockweed. Um, it's so just this is the show is called Coastal Conversations. Yeah. So we're going to zero in on Ascophyllum for a minute. Um, so uh, what are you looking for in Ascophyllum? I think a lot of our listeners, you know, they have rockweed nearby or they take hikes on the shore. They go tide pooling. Um, right. What What are you looking for in rockweed? <laughs> we're looking for crabs. No. Yeah. <laughs> um, so... Ascophyllum or rockweed or bladder rack or knotted rack, depending on what you want to call it, is one of the signs of the season's target species. So it's one of the organisms or one of the things that signs of the seasons has set up a protocol and a way to collect data so that we can share our data with other people. And the things that we're looking for are it's it's just like a flowering plant, sort of. We're looking for when it's got little buds and when the buds get bigger and when the buds sort of pop, only instead mm-hmm. of being buds, they're actually called receptacles. And when they pop, they are very distinctive looking. And then when they sort of wither off of the plant, they really do wither and fall off the plant or algae. And so we're actually looking for those. Those are the phenophases we're looking for. When do the buds or receptacles first show up? When do they get bigger? When do they sort of release um, their gametes? And then when do they fall off the plant? So those are the things we're looking for. Neat. Um, Esperanza, you have something to add related to Ascophyllum or something else? Yeah, uh, well, and the and one of the reasons that Ascophyllum is so important is that it is actually provides food to other organisms in the intertidal. Um, and it's, it's also uh, a commercial species. It's harvested in Maine. Um, so people are very interested in it for a number of different reasons. And we work very closely with researcher Jesse Mullen at Maine Maritime Academy, who is studying Ascophyllum along the coast. We have actually about six sites from New Hampshire up to Skudik um, with people looking at, um, at Ascophyllum. And um, it's also, uh, it's, its reproductive cycle is what we're really interested in, which is exactly what Hannah just explained, um, uh, what what they're actually looking at and looking to observe. And there's also a water quality component because it's temperature mm-hmm. dependent. And so as our uh, our waters get warmer, how is this going to affect these plants? Their, their range is from uh, Baffin Island down to New Jersey. And uh, we don't know much about our southern uh, neighboring uh, places, but uh, we hope to find out a lot more about what's happening along the coast in mm. New England. Yeah, um, you just mentioned um, the changes that might happen um, in in this case in the ocean uh, as potentially the waters get warmer. 
which raises sort of this larger question of how do these kinds of observations that citizens can make in their backyard or on the shore of their favorite coastal trail, um, how does this contribute to larger understandings of um, global climate change? How do, what's the connection here? Sure. So so this is Abe. Um, it turns out that, that species are responding dramatically. So some species are actually changing really their phenology really fast in response to climate change. So as temperatures warm, for instance, blueberries are flowering three to four weeks earlier than they were 100 years ago or 160 years ago when Henry David Thoreau was looking for them. Um, and other species are changing very little. So their flowering times are essentially staying the same. Um, and some events are getting earlier and some events are getting later. And so there it can end up being this kind of mix-up of relationships between species. There can be mismatches between, for instance, plants and pollinators or between predators and prey. And that's one of the things that we're as a as a conservation agency, the Park Service, the National Park Service is really concerned about is using these observations that volunteers and professional scientists and actually even we have satellites measuring phenology mm. as well, um, telling helping us understand which species are likely to be most vulnerable to these changes and to these mismatches. Um, and so that's that's our interest. There are other agencies. Um, we're also using these observations to help us manage invasive species. Uh, the U.S. Department of Agriculture is also really interested um, in managing pests using phenology observations to help manage pests, um, whether they're insect pests or or, or plant pests. Um, and the EPA and, and other agencies are also interested in using phenology as an, just an indicator of climate change, telling us how... Um, uh, how the seasons are changing. And then kind of lastly, and, and that hits a lot of people in their pocketbooks, especially around here, is is we're using it to understand changes in tourism. So yeah. changes in the timing of fall tourism or our growing season in Maine is, is uh, in coastal Maine is a little over two months longer than it was 100 years mm. ago. Wow. And uh, we just got a forecast of future predictions of lengthening of our growing season are anticipated to lead to uh, our visitor visitation at Acadia increasing by 40% or more over the next 30 to 40 years. And so that'll really, that that's real effects of changes in phenology, just the growing season length, leading to changes in tourism and our economy. Wow. Wow. Um, that's fascinating. And I know that um, in Maine, between your organizations and the programs that you all help coordinate you've zero we've zeroed in on um i guess we're calling them target species is that the right terminology um h- how do we how do you identify which are the species that sort of will give you the information that you're looking for or is does it depend on whether it's a citizen science project or researchers or how does that piece kind of happen in terms of what you actually monitor well i can address some of that and i'm sure abe can add to this um but I think that um, basically our criteria for choosing these what we call indicator species or target species um, would be, you know, um, uh, are there researchers who, uh, you know, are interested in in this in a particular species that that we we want to look at? Also, what's the the only good data? The data that 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 are uh, in, the data is entered on, or or you know that's that people actually collect. So right. uh, it's got to be it. 
Yeah, yeah. it's got to be accessible to people. Mm-hmm. So it has to be commonly found. There's a thing called calibration species that we have also on our list that um, are found elsewhere in other states, other places, that we can make more comparisons across, you know, our region. Um, and, um, and and basically, you know, is this a species that's important? Is it commercially important? Is it valuable economically? There are a lot of different criteria that we use for um, for determining this. And we've been adding to it. We've added mm. amphibians most recently because we realize that's, a you know, sort of a little bit of the canary in the coal mine here. So. Right. Um, so there are many different reasons um, and ways that we uh, we choose these species. Yeah, I, I think your answer was was really good. I, I think so. We focus on species that are for citizen science observations, especially things that are relatively common and easy to observe. But we really also want them to be important for various reasons. So, for instance, some of the species that Signs of the Seasons focuses on, red maple, is is a super common species. And changes in its leaf out and changes in when it drops its fall foliage has big impacts on, on for instance, water, because it's transpiring mm-hmm. the longer it's its leaves are on there. Or we can be focusing on species that are vulnerable for one reason or another, like monarch butterflies um, and the milkweeds that they lay their eggs on. Um, and so there are potential mismatches there in timing if the, if the milkweeds aren't at the right stage when the, when the monarchs mm-hmm. are laying their eggs. Uh, and then in other cases, it could be species that are really good indicators because um, even though, so for instance, common lilac, even though it's a cultivated species, it turns out it's a really good indicator of a w- lot of what our eastern, under, for the understory shrubs and trees in our eastern forests are doing. So those lilacs change their phenology really similar to a lot of other species. And they're, the lilacs are really common, um, easy to observe in your yard. Um, and can tell us things that are really important about ecology. You've just answered one of my questions. I noticed that one of your species is Forsythia. And I thought, well, isn't Forsythia not from here originally, right? I mean, it's been here for a long Mm -hmm. time in people's backyards. But so so even the non-native species have really critical information to give. That's right. That's exactly why Forsythia and Lilac are both on there as non-native species. They're really good indicators. It turns out they respond to climate just the same as a lot of our native cherries and a lot of other of our understory species in our forests. Interesting. And so at Scudic, you guys have zeroed in on mountain ash as one of them. And how did how did you come to that decision? Right. Well, so and what, sort of what are you seeing with mountain ash too? So first we picked mountain ash because. Um, so it just hits a lot of the other things that um, Esperanza and Abe have said. Uh, first of all, it's access- it's it's accessible. Uh-huh. Um, it's also something where we know what the phenophases look like. It's in the National Phenology Network sort of target species database. I don't want to hazard a guess to how many species there are in that database, but it's <laughs> one of them. Uh-huh. And so we know that the data... Um, by putting it into a shared database, we can share it not just with ourselves but with researchers all over the place so that other people can look at our data and say, hmm, that's what I'm seeing here. That's not what I'm seeing where I am. Um, so that's sort of how we zeroed in on mountain ash. And um, what are we seeing on the mountain ash? We've only been at this for two years. Okay. So I'm not... It's preliminary. Yes, it's most definitely preliminary. For yeah. This, at but this stage of the game. Here, I can... If you don't uh-huh. mind, I'll chime in and fill out at our hypothesis about what yes. what we're concerned about that um, 
that may be happening. You know, you mentioned Hannah. Hannah mentioned the birds eating stuff project. Is that we know that plants, on average, I mentioned that things are changing really differently. But plants, on average, are, are flowering earlier, and they're fruiting. Their fruits are ripening earlier yet because they start developing as soon as the flowers are done, and they develop faster in warmer temperatures. Mm. But we also know that our fall migrating birds are migrating on average later. So some are coming the same time, but some are coming later. And so there's this potential mismatch between fruiting trees and, and other plants. And mountain ash has really great fruits that lots of birds eat. And, but there's a potential mismatch between when those fruits are ripe and when the fall migrating birds are getting here. We're concerned that some of the very latest of the migrants may be missing out on a lot of the fruits that they rely on to feed on as they're migrating further south. And so we're investigating how that relationship changes from year to year. Mm-hmm. And, and that's what we're starting with the mountain ash. Wow, interesting. And and so the the value, Hannah, what you were saying about sort of connecting within this larger existing structure where people all over the place are connecting their data on mountain ash into this larger database, you can do some correlations that you may not have originally been able to do. Right, exactly. Very cool. Super helpful. Yeah, that's really neat. Um, If you're just tuning in, um, our topic today on Coastal Conversations is phenology or tracking the seasonal changes of plants and animals in our communities and how that is informing larger research on global climate change. Um, My guests in the studio today are Hannah Weber from the Skudik Institute, Esperanza Stanchioff from the University of Maine Cooperative Extension and Sea Grant, and Abe Miller Rushing from Acadia National Park. and um, we also have online Susan Gallo from Maine Audubon. Hi, Susan. Hi. So welcome to the show. It's great to have you. Yeah, thanks for having me. Um, so Susan Gallo is a wildlife biologist with Maine Audubon. Um, and Maine Audubon has been for a really long time, I think, and you'll tell us the details, um, engaged in monitoring loons. Um, and if I understand correctly, there is now sort of a connection between your longstanding loon project and um, other phenology efforts and the signs of the Seasons program here in the state. Um, so tell us a little bit about the loon project to start, and welcome to the show. Sure, thanks. Well, uh, the loon project's been going on for over 32 years, um, probably closer to 35 in the late 70s is um when it was kind of born, and it came out of an interest, uh, sort of people were concerned about loons. They seemed to be um, disappearing from lakes. They weren't, people weren't seeing as many as before. So Maine Audubon got together with um, our Inland Fisheries and Wildlife Department and the folks up at the Cooperative Extension up at the University of Maine, got together and um, started talking about how can we, you know, how can we assess loon populations and how can we figure out what's going on. And what came out of those efforts was what culminated in 1983 as a protocol for citizen scientists to go out and um, monitor uh, loons. They, we didn't call them citizen scientists back then, but that's what they are now. They're people, just everyday people interested in nature, making observations, and just doing it in a coordinated way and reporting back. Um, so everybody follows the same protocol. It's the third Saturday in July. It's from 7.30 to 8 in the morning. And people are assigned a lake or a part of a lake, and they go out and they they basically do a survey for loans and report back how many adults and how many chicks they found. Um, that's uh, that's I'm just fascinated as these guys have heard already about this connection of bringing everyday folks into it. So over the 
couple, three decades that you guys have been engaged in monitoring loons, what are your volunteers finding? What are the trends that you're seeing over time with loon populations? Well, um, well, first of all, I'll just say the loon count is sort of the central focus of the main loon project, but we have our volunteers do lots of other things. Great. So, but the loon count itself, what we found is the adult population has been slowly, steadily increasing since uh, 1983, and, and that accounts for we we do a sampling, sampling um, we do our population estimate based on a sample, so we can have more, more or fewer loon counters from year to year. That's not going to change our estimate. Um, so our estimate's pretty robust, and it's in, on the increase. And we have about twice as many loons. In um, 2014, our last count, we had about 3,200 uh, adult loons uh, in the state, and this is on the southern half of the state. So if you draw a line from sort of Calus to Rangeley South, we had about 3,200 adults um, compared to 1,600 in um, the early 80s. So mm. that's a big jump for adults, and that's exciting and great to see. The downside is that we have not seen we have not seen a you know sort of a concurrent increase in chicks. So even though we have a lot more adults on our lakes, our loon chicks really vary from year to year. So nothing um, you know nothing steady about them. They go. Some years we have 600, some years we have 100, you know, and it jumps back and forth between those kind of two extremes and hasn't really ever increased. So even though we do have more adults, um, we don't necessarily have higher productivity or more breeding pairs. So that has been an ongoing concern for us because, you know, if you see more adults, you'd like to see more chicks, especially if you're looking to the future. So that's where um, this connection with... um, signs of the seasons really um came up because we have this great group of people who are we have about a thousand volunteers across the state they're incredibly motivated most of them have been um you know once they do it for a couple years they're kind of almost in it for life i mean we have a lot of we have a lot of we probably have about 20 to 30 people who have done it all 32 years which i think is pretty that's amazing the other night we had a, a signs of the season workshop we had uh, 16 people in the room, and we counted up 310 years of loon counting experience among all these loon counters in the room. So wow. it speaks to this amazing group, and Signs of the Seasons is a great opportunity to take their passion and their interest in doing this anyway. And just by tweaking a few of, you know, asking them to go out a little more often, asking them to make some observations about the timing of when they see things, we can, you know, just with a little bit more effort on their part, we can get a huge um, we can build a huge data set of information about timing of loons and seasonality of loons, which is important looking forward because they, they are a cold weather species. They're definitely going to be impacted by a changing climate. Yeah. Wow. That's that's an incre- incredible sort of volunteer base. That's great. Um, in terms of sort of the phenology of loons, what are some of the things that you're looking at as, you know, sort of I'm thinking migration, mating, when the eggs hatch, that, that is it that kind of thing that you're sort of starting to look at? Yeah, exactly. We have we we have a lot of anecdotal um, observations that we we're, you know we we're pretty sure they come back right at ice out, um, and but to document that would be great. When is ice out and when do those loons show up? Mm. Um, you know they do. We we think they make sort of pre during migration they make some scouting trips and so they're always kind of checking out a little bit further north and a little bit further north and they're looking for where that ice is as the ice is receding northward so 
they do show up right at ice out confirming that and getting some dates on that would be great um definitely interested in when chicks hatch um and how how many chicks survive you know when um we we think we are we think that chick mortality is real is really high when they're little when they're first hatched because they're pretty vulnerable um they have a lot of predators snapping turtles eagles big fish you know you name it mm-hmm. they are a tasty snack for a lot of predators um so by making some observations you can you can age chicks kind of by roughly into kind of four stages and so if we can if people can make observations and stage those chicks and take a guess on how old they are. We can look back at hatching dates, you know, make some estimates for hatching dates. Um, and then moving into the fall, you know, so knowing, um, you know, so knowing how old the chicks are, knowing how long they survive, um, and then, you know, if they survive all the way to the fall, that would be great. That also is not only timing, it's productivity information that we'll get in terms of how successful the nests are. And then looking at the fall and when are they leaving. Um, and again, they tend to leave, adults tend to leave, um, and fly out to the ocean, right? You know, they kind of start now, the adults start early. Chicks tend to stay very late. Juveniles, um, who have hatched that in that summer, they tend to stay, uh, into November and December. And so with the changes in our ice, you know, when ice comes in and when ice goes out, it will be really interesting information to figure out who's staying and how long. Um, they're staying on our water, you know, again, it, 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 they, how well they'll be able to adapt to changing climates and changing ice in and ice out um, is just a really interesting question. The more we know about it, the better we'll be able to um, work on conservation sort of solutions for what we can do to help keep Maine, uh, Maine saloons healthy. That's great. That's great. Um, I'm curious if anybody um, here in the studio has any questions or comments related to the project that Susan's coordinating or Esperanza, maybe how it fits in with the Sign of the Seasons project that you've been helping coordinate. Well, I think Susan had uh, a wonderful explanation of Mm -hmm. of the connection. I I don't have anything to add to that except that... um, you know, loons have been on our list for a long time, but I think we've not had the right audience for mm-hmm. <laughs> for tapping into that data collection. And I think that you know, a couple of things that are really wonderful with the partnership is certainly it's a it's a win win uh, for loons and uh, and for those of us who coordinate these programs. Um, so now we'll be able to start really looking at the details, uh, as Susan explained, and I think that's just very exciting. That's great. That's great. Um, Susan, I have, I have one more question for you. Do, are, um, are your volunteers, are they going to the same site? I think you said once a month or every week, I can't remember, or are they going, are they going to lakes? Are they going to the ocean? Sort of a little bit of the nuts and bolts of what they're actually yeah, doing. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's mostly lakes, I think, because they're not breeding on the oceans, and we're more more interested at this point in the breeding, um, breeding phenology and what they're doing on our okay. lakes. So it's, it is a freshwater lake project at this point. Um, and then for the loon count, they're actually assigned either a lake or a portion of a lake. And that's another nice thing about the signs of the seasons is sometimes we have multiple people kind of vying for the same section of lake. For signs of the season, they can pick any place they want um, if they have a regular lake. They, and they don't have to live on a lake, which... It has the potential, most of our loon counters do either live on a lake or mm. have a camp or tend to, you know, have some kind of tie to a lake. Signs of the Seasons is great because you can really, it opens the door for anyone who's going to just make a regular visit to a lake every other week 
Um, they can really go anywhere they want. If two people are monitoring the same territory, that's okay. You know, they you can. Whereas with the loon count, you really don't want that kind of double counting effort, and we actively discourage people from doing that. With signs of the season, the way it's spread out, if two people want to do the same pair, that's great. They can, you know, we can look at, we can um, get some quality control, quality information on the that data collection. You know, it's it's all. It's all good. So it really opens up the door for more people to participate and really um, the sky's the limit in terms of where you want to go. That's great. Thank you, Susan. If uh, any of our listeners wanted to get involved, how should they tap in? Yeah, they should check out the Maine Audubon, uh, Maine Audubon website. Um, and, you know, if it's, if it's signs of the seasons, you can go through, um, you know, the program contact information that I'm sure you're getting from the other folks here. Um but either for the loon count or you can come through me to get to the signs of the seasons as well, um, the Maine Audubon website, which is Maine Audubon, one word, um, maineaudubon.org. Um, and you can find my email address on there, and then you can find more information about the loon project as well. Great. Thank you so much, Susan. All right. Thanks so much for having me. Have a great day. You too. Bye-bye. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to Coastal Conversations on WERU. Our show today is on phenology and the tracking of seasonal changes of plants and animals in our communities and how that um, is contributing to larger understanding of global climate change. Um, we just heard from Susan Gallo from Maine Audubon. So if you wanted more information on the Loon Project, um, check in with Maine Audubon. And in the studio, I have Hannah Weber from the Scudic Institute. I have Abe Miller-Rushing from Acadia National Park and Esperanza Stancioff from the University of Maine Cooperative Extension and Sea Grant. Um, Esperanza, you, uh, as sort of in one of the coordinating roles for the Signs of the Seasons project, tell us a little bit about some of the other species that you guys are monitoring. Well, we have um, two deciduous tree species, which are highly valued by researchers uh, to get that those data. Um they include uh, red maple and sugar maple, and sugar maple being um, definitely a commercial uh, species in Maine, um, and uh, so that's a that's an important one for from an industry perspective. Um, we also um, have uh, hummingbirds, ruby throated hummingbirds, monarchs, um, uh, American robin. Uh, you know, there's just a there's a huge list yeah, of them. Yeah, neat. And, um, um, before I ask you more questions about that, I just wanted to encourage if you out there, our listeners, have any questions or comments or observations that you're making in your own backyard or on your favorite lake or in your favorite bay, um, call in and let us know what you're thinking or what your questions are for our phenology experts. Our uh, toll-free number is one 625 that's one eight six 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 two five W E R U. So this is a question for all of you. Um, what are some of the really amazing things that you're finding, or some of the surprise moments, or some of the aha moments that maybe your volunteers have seen? What's sort of been exciting or unexpected out there? Yeah, go ahead, Esperanza. Well, you know, I have to say that you know we've only been at this for five years, so uh-huh. the variability I think is really interesting to people. So in 2012, you know, things happened much earlier than this year, for example, um, because we had such a long and hard winter. Many of the forsythia uh, blossoms didn't happen this it, year. This year, okay. 
um, this season and so from last winter. And so, um, it, you know, it was leafing out in some cases rather than, than having blossoms. So everybody was very interested in that um, phenomenon. Um, hey, Vin, uh, Amy here. I just need to jump in for a second and let listeners know and let people in the studio know we are going to sometime in the next five minutes be going off the air for just a couple of seconds. Okay. They're doing some work on the tower. Bear with us if you're listening. We'll be right back. If you're listening online, you probably won't even notice. Thanks. Sorry for the interruption. Thank you, Amy. That was Amy, our trusted engineer. So go ahead, Abe. Um, I was just going to add that through our work with historical records, as well as um, new records made with that citizen science volunteers have made, we've recognized like one of the most surprising findings is that the phenology has of species is linked to how they perform, how their changes in abundance. In fact, in uh, in Massachusetts, what we found is that uh, species whose flowering times, for instance, track changes in climate really well. So they flower earlier in warmer years mm. and later in cooler years. They've done really well. So they've tended – blueberries are like that. Actually, most of our invasive plants are like that. Um, and then species whose flowering times don't track the changes in climate, they tend to flower about the same time each year, have tended to decline or disappear entirely from our flora. Wow. In some cases, those are some of our most charismatic New England wildflowers. So uh, orchids, our lilies, buttercups, roses, many of the uh, are goldenrods and asters, huh. which are around right now. So we have many fewer of those right now um, than we did in the past. And it appears that that's linked to how their flowering times and fruiting times and leaf out times are responding to climate. Uh, wow. And we've found that same people have looked for that, have found that same pattern in other places in the world um, and also in other taxonomic groups. So birds, for instance, birds whose migration times are tracking changes in climate are doing better than those that aren't tracking mm-hmm. changes. And so we can use these observations to identify which species are most vulnerable. Uh, hold that thought a quick second, Hannah. I think we have a phone call. Um, from a listener, um, if you want to just say your name, and um, happy to have you on the show. Hello, is that me? Yes, that's you. Hi, Owen. Hey. Okay, I want to leave this totally open-ended and just see if I can get some kind of candid answers. Great. I've, I've heard, you know, some various things, such as that there were, our growing season is going to be longer, et cetera. And I just want to see what people who are... Uh, you know, here commenting, have to say about that whether this climate change is necessarily a net benefit or harm to humanity's, you know, existence in the world. Because I've heard various things, including that, you know, extreme weather events, et cetera, are harmful. But at the same time, I've, you know, knowing history and such as like the Carboniferous period, the time when there was the most abundance of life and biodiversity in the world, why is it necessarily a bad thing if species composition in Maine changes over time and we have a longer growing season, et cetera? So I I just want to hear people's comments on that and like candid answers about whether people think this is necessary, you know, changes are necessarily harmful overall to our ability to habit the world. That's a great question. Thank you so much for posing a very provocative question. Um, right. um, that's, 
Yeah, that's great. Love to yeah, yeah, we love it. So um, we'll we'll let you go, just so you know. But I'm going to let these guys Thanks. kind of go yeah. with your question because um, I'm getting all kinds of really great facial expressions here in the studio. So thank you so much for a great question. Uh, who wants to jump in first? I have a feeling you all have something to say. Uh, I I can so this is Abe. I can take the first crack at that. Um, you know, it's it's a good question. It's an important point to remember. As climate changes, as the growing season length changes, as, as phenology changes, there are going to be winners and losers in this. In, in this, so mm-hmm. so some species and some people will will do really well. So some businesses will do really well. Um, some species uh, will do really well, but others will will lose and, and will lose big time. And 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 some species we will disappear almost certainly. And uh, and some individuals will have hard times as as our businesses need to change and adapt. Uh, farming practices, tourism practices, uh, things for the National Park Service. We're really concerned because the character of Acadia National Park is likely to change. This thing that we decided to protect a hundred years ago is going to look very, very different um, 100 years from now. And, and is that what we want? Um, and, and so that, that's where a lot of the question goes. And, and anyhow, so I'll let other people kind of chime in too. Yeah, Esperanza. Yeah, well, I mean, an example of something that's going to change that is changing, and we we're we're seeing it, it's documented, is that um, uh, you know our lobster industry. It's like the third lar- largest fishing industry in the United States, and um, we have coastal communities whose livelihoods and culture, et cetera, depend on uh, the lobster industry. They're moving north because of warming temperatures in the Gulf of Maine and along the coast of Maine, and so. You know, that's a species that um, is completely uh, commercially extinct from from our southern neighbors, um, probably due in large part to to warming temperatures and and other factors. But um, for Maine, that's a that's an you know, that's a a very huge loss um, if it continues north to uh, if the lobsters continue north to Canada. Also, as far as plants go. Um, what I'm hearing from my agricultural co- colleagues um, at UMaine and elsewhere is that, um, yeah, I mean, there, there's going to be, uh, you know, farmers are used to uh, change and having to adapt to, to weather variations over time. However, um, the invasive species and pests that we've never seen before are coming and they're here. Um, and uh, and that's really problematic. So that that becomes more of a loser situation. Um, also, when you look at um, disease uh, in Maine, such as uh, Lyme disease and many others that are tick-borne vectors, um, have uh, are you know contributing to to illness uh, as well. Um, allergies are on the rise. Things like that uh, that are definitely uh, a losing proposition for humans yeah and, and one last thing i just want to add um is is that it's it's as things change it's expensive to adapt um so our you know as coastal roads become inundated it's going to be difficult to expensive to move them it's going to be expensive to kind of adapt new farming practices or new other things as replace all these culverts that we're having to replace because they're undersized for the new rainfalls we're getting. And so so it becomes extremely expensive to adapt to different climate conditions as well. Also, habitat corridors. You know, uh, a lot of our species in Maine and everywhere really um, need corridors of, of, uh, of habitat, uh, habitat space and, and ways to be able to move north um, if they're 
uh, more temperate species. And um, as those uh, habitats get closed off, those corridors get closed off, it becomes problematic for them to survive. Um, so I'm, I'm going to try to put myself in the head of our caller and, and maybe a follow-up question that he might ask. Apologies for taking on your persona caller. Um, but uh, so what are the benefits what for, in terms of species that are out there, what are the what are the things? What are, is it? Just adaptations, species that are able to proliferate that hadn't before. Um, just to keep keep going with this question for a minute, like invasives. <laughs> okay, let's go with invasives for a minute. <laughs> yeah, so so there are some species that are going to do that, that will do uh, very well in in these conditions. So, for instance, some birds are able to get in a whole new brood in the summer. So some some birds. Um, with the longer growing season are able to have a, a whole new set of chicks and 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 so their populations can can increase actually pretty dramatically um, there are uh, the, a lot of invasive right so there are species like purple loosestrife or or other plants that are able to take advantage of the longer growing season and they're mm-hmm. they're increasing in abundance um, and uh, and the longer tourist season here could really be a boon for a lot of people in the tourism industry. So some some people like like the park Acadia National Park maybe look kind of nervously at great increases in the visitor season and the and the number of tourists coming because our budget is not likely to increase um, right, to meet right. the needs of those increased visitors. Um, but the businesses around can can can. Uh, could conceivably do really well with that. Um, and you can grow new different kinds of crops in those conditions as well. Um, and so, uh, so anyhow, so there, there will be certainly be some, some winners. Um, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's an, uh, an interesting way to think about it, that there will be some winners amongst the, the losers. Yeah, Esperanza. Well, this is not about winners. It's, again, about losers. But, Go for um, it. <laughs> um, <laughs> You know, uh, certainly certain uh, seabirds and shorebirds mm-hmm. and uh, puffins, for example. There's a um, you know a, probably a little more complex life cycle and and uh, food chain for for them. Um, and so when algae blooms happen and the fish that they depend on uh, don't coincide, um, then they may not have the food source that they need due to warming temperatures. So there's another. Uh, situation that you know we could uh, possibly look forward to, and, and that's something that we think is happening with puffins, right? Yes, yeah. yes, yeah. And then there could be, you know, if, if we want to talk about winners and losers, it's also about capitalizing on a winner. I mean, going back to the a green crab, so green crabs are definitely winning in this, you know, mm. new environment. And the thing is, is that we haven't necessarily been able to capitalize on that. You know, I think Brian Beal was here a few months yeah. ago and he said mm-hmm. we have to eat our way out of this situation. And we just haven't quite figured out how to eat our way out of the green crab thing. So tell us a little bit about the green crab thing. So, right. Um, green crabs are definitely on the rise and they definitely seem to have a temperature relationship to how big their population gets. And so as you know, sea surface temperature warms up, we get more green crabs and more green crabs and more green crabs who could be pretty deleterious to the rest of the critters in the intertidal. But, you know, as Dr. Beale said, we could eat our way out of this problem if we could just figure out how. So your caller might be the winner if, <laughs> in that situation if you could come up with a way of capitalizing on all the green crabs we have. 
well, there is an Asian market for green crabs, and so that's that's the conundrum: is you know how do we how do we get it? How do we process these things? And so. And one of the concerns with the green crab is that we think they might be negatively impacting the native clam population and eelgrass and, and these kinds of species right. in our... Definitely. Yeah, going back to apes, there's going to be winners and there's going to be losers. Yeah, yeah, that's a good good theme for this conversation. Um, we might have time for one or two more quick calls, one 625 9378 or 1-866-625-WERU. Um, But before that, I just wanted to make sure that since so much of the work that um, is done in the realm of phenology is citizen-driven and citizen science volunteers are a big part of the equation, why don't we make sure you guys all get a chance of letting our listeners know how they can tap in? Um, Who wants to start? Yeah, I'll start. Actually, go ahead. And I'm going to just plug signs of the seasons afterwards. Mm So um, anybody who comes to Scudic Institute can certainly get involved on the ground with our mountain ash project. And we would love to have more observers just coming to campus and doing this very localized project. Um, And as I mentioned earlier, we monitor Ascofilum because it's supported by signs of the seasons. And we would love to have more observers up and down the coast because then we have a greater ability to compare. Oh, you're seeing that? Oh, we're seeing this, which would be super helpful. So without signs of the seasons, we wouldn't have that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and how can people tap into signs of the seasons? Thanks, Hannah. Um, <laughs> um, yes, well, we have uh, we start our uh, training programs. We have uh, a training program that we do pretty much regionally or, you know, any group actually that, you know, will come to them. Um, but we start our trainings in March and, uh, and we go pretty much throughout the season, but concentrate on getting people out there early, um, when things are really happening in the spring. Um, so, uh, we have a great website. Um, even if you're not interested in participating, there are great stories on the website about research that's happening in Maine and elsewhere and phenology stories um, and interesting information. And our website is through UMaine Cooperative Extension, um, the UMaine website um, system, and it's Signs of the Seasons. If you Google us, Signs of the Seasons UMaine, you'll find us. Um, And we have, um, you know, like I said, volunteers throughout the state. So we try to... um, uh, get get more folks and uh, and uh, they would be going out once a week early in the season and then maybe you know every other week uh, to make observations once you're trained and registered online for the uh, Na- uh, National Phenology Network database which we use um, then it's a matter of um, maybe 15 minutes making observations each time. I'm sort of envisioning well-trained volunteers just going out to their backyard and collecting information on what they see. Exactly. I love uh, Sunday mornings going out uh, with my cup mm-hmm. of coffee I'm, and making I my observations. <laughs> yeah. That's great. Um, Abe, how about you? What other ways can people tap in? Uh, well, I just wanted to... So, 
There actually, it turns out there are lots of different programs that monitor uh-huh. phonology. That so, Signs of the Seasons is one of our absolute favorites. But um, if you're, some people may already be participating in projects and don't know that they're monitoring phonology. But things like eBird, if you're a birder, it's just like keeping a bird mm-hmm. checklist, but it's online, um, and so scientists can can track and access your data. Uh, iNaturalist is a is another online app that can allows you to take pictures of any species and track the phonology of them, or Hawkwatch, which happens at different sites around the country. Including we, at Acadia, right? Including mm-hmm. on Cadillac Mountain in Acadia. Uh, Scudic Institute and the National Park Service work together to, to do that. And all of those data, whichever pro- of those programs you participate in, um, we combine those data and are looking at how phonology is changing and how relationships among species are changing. It really feels like the take-home message on phonology is for people who have a love of nature and are naturally inclined to make observations, that information can really contribute to larger questions, larger research questions and decision-making. Yeah, and and it's really important. The reason that we do use citizen science volunteers for this, or, or one of the big reasons, is because we can't, we don't have enough professional scientists to to do to make these observations we need volunteers to help us understand how these are changing and how they're impacting the species that we care about and other aspects of our lives that we care about our health and agriculture and other things great so um i just wanted to kind of wrap up with i'm just going to share with our listeners some of the uh, i'm just going to name some of the species that are target species because um Folks out there all have an affiliation to different species, and it's kind of interesting to hear the diversity as we as we close up. So uh, monarch butterflies, mountain ash, hummingbirds, fish larvae, maples, milkweed, rockweed, forsythia, wild strawberries, American toad, spring peeper, wood frog, robins, white pine, common reeds, loons. You know, these are all species that are just right there in our backyard. So there's really a lot of opportunity for all of us to contribute to some good information. Thanks so much to you guys in the studio. Um, We have unfortunately come to the end of our time here on Coastal Conversation today about phenology and citizen science on the coast and how it's contributing to global climate change research. And I just wanted to thank all three of you and our um, call-in guest for your time and your good work. Um, So in the studio, we had Hannah Weber from the Scudic Institute, Abe Miller-Rushing from Acadia National Park, Esperanza Stansioff from uh, University of Maine Cooperative Extension and Sea Grant. And on the line, we had Susan Gallo, a wildlife biologist from Maine Audubon. Thanks to our caller for throwing us a great provocative question. Um, I also wanted to thank Beth Bisson from the University of Maine Sea Grant for helping compile this show on this topic um, and wanted to thank the phenology um, volunteers out there, all of you out there. Hopefully many of you are listening, I have a feeling. So thanks to everyone who listened and called in. Coastal Conversations is produced with support from the Maine Sea Grant Program at the University of Maine, bringing marine science to Maine people. Join us from 10 to 11 a.m. on the fourth Friday of each month, except for next month. Uh, Our October show will be on the second Friday of each month. We're swapping uh, dates with Talk of the Towns, um, our longtime standing show here on WERU. 
Our show's theme music, A Following Sea, was composed and performed by Paul Anderson. Thanks to Amy Brown for engineering our program, and stay tuned for On the Wing with Joel Raymond. This is Natalie Springle from Maine Sea Grant, host of Coastal Conversations, wishing you a good morning. Support for WERU comes from our listeners.